sweet dogs, we are new to who. Whether you don't know the old and only the new, we are the chaps with suggestions for you. I'm Stephen. I'm Dan. I'm Brendan. I'm Nathan. Hey! <laughs> so we have Brendan and Nathan here from Flight Through Entirety on episode 10 for The Invasion. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yes, indeed. <laughs> We're excited to sit down with you. Very much so, particularly as Flight Through Entirety is one of our all-time favourite yeah, um, so. Doctor Who podcasts. So. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> it's the only one I've listened to as much as I have all the way through. Yeah, it is. It, it's, it's one of those that I keep going back to as well. It makes me laugh. Yeah. But I always, always learn something. I'll probably learn more than I bargained for every time. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. We have a policy of, you know, occasionally throwing a true fact in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and just generally oversharing our private lives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's wonderful for you to come in. So thank you very much. And as, as mentioned, we're doing uh, season six. Where we're going back to black and white. Not only are we going back to black and white, we're going to an eight part. Eight parts. From 1968. Season six is actual classic. I think this is wonderful. It's The Invasion. It's so superb. <laughs> Absolutely superb. And of course, it doesn't all exist. Mm. Mm. So obviously, we got part one mm. and part, uh, is it three or four? Four. Four that doesn't exist that's been recently animated in the last few years by Cosgrove Hall. And they, I think they do a good I job. I think it's good. Yeah. yeah. I've enjoyed it. I think it's the best um, DVD animation that we've that we've had. And Because mm. in the animation, you see Vaughn and Vaughn's office before you see it for real. That's mm. true. And it's like immediately, you don't even think about it. It's immediately recognizable because they just nailed it. So yeah. Great. Can I just say, in terms of it being recent, just so we all feel old, November 2006, that DVD <laughs> was released. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. Sharda, which of course is the most recent Doctor Who animation, came out earlier this year. And, you know, we just kind of think, oh, the classic range. Yeah, yeah. The classic range kind of wound up in 2014 with the underwater menace, but it doesn't feel like that long yeah. because we can just go back to them now. Mm which we couldn't always do. But yeah, I love The Invasion. And as you say, eight episodes, it doesn't feel like it. It's, no. It doesn't... We always talk about filler in our episode three filler, and it doesn't... I mean, there's some going from place to place in a little bit, but it doesn't drag and it doesn't... You don't get you don't get frustrated. No, and I think there's a number of reasons for that. Oh, we'll go into them yeah. later on. Um, but I think maybe at this point, uh, we should go into the TARDIS team and yeah. introduce our regulars. Um, we've met some of them before, but not all. It's the second Doctor played by Patrick Troughton. Um, Brendan, I'm going to throw to you at this point to talk about Patrick Troughton. <laughs> uh, Patrick Troughton is my absolute favourite Doctor, still mm. remains my favourite Doctor, even with the uh, new series. On the one hand, you know, he was the man who replaced William Hartnell yeah. and therefore had the big job of keeping the show going and making the audience accept that this was the same character sure. or at least a replacement for a character that we actually want to watch and I think what makes him so so very good is that he is always compelling to watch yeah. I um, being a fan I love spreadsheets and <laughs> I, I did a spreadsheet where I scored every story out of 10 yep I've done the same and I came, I came away quite surprised in that the second Doctor's era, in terms of stories, scores out of ten, the average is the lowest. I can in understand. Terms, in terms of the stories, but Patrick Troughton himself is just always compelling mm -hmm. to watch. And part of the problem with him in animation is that 
in live action his face yes. his you face see all is the where bits. it's at yeah. yeah and that's something I think the Cosgrove Hall animation gets a bit more than say the um, the uh, Kairos animation mm-hmm. from the Ice Warriors mm-hmm. release or even the more detailed Planet 55 from the moon base they're all really good and I'm really glad we have them but mm. Yeah, something about He's, Cosgrove Hall really gets it right. We were just saying before we watched it, we to refresh it last night, and we were talking about the bit where uh, Jamie and the Doctor are about to be apprehended by a unit, and they they just sort of give up and sit down and start playing cards. <laughs> and it was like if it, that had been animated, you'd never see you'd never see that little bit, and it yeah. was just so funny. Yeah. And that and was weird. Patrick Troughton's suggestion. <laughs> must, that, it was, it wasn't in the script, but <laughs> what, what it was, Patrick Troughton liked playing cards between <laughs> takes and we're, and we're like doing this and he just said well you know the doctor says in the script we just accept the situation but it's a bit boring if they just stand there how about they pretend and they, like they're, what they're doing is perfectly normal yeah they both do it as if they've done it before a million yes, times it's yeah. so great they have such a great double act um, yeah. um jamie fraser hines and nice segue because our, yeah. our, 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 our long-standing companion going right back in fact to the second ever Troughton story from the highlanders is, is is jamie mccrimmon the scotsman and he's played by by fraser hines nathan what do you think well i actually think that he's really a very kind of underwritten character but it it all comes to Fraser's performance yeah and the two of them I mean they're both similar heights they're both constantly touching one another. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. when when they were, when they were um yeah when unit was after them I kept noticing that Jamie kept grabbing the doctor like it was, it was so cute it's it's really funny to see um Patrick come back for things like the two doctors and well, less the two Doctors, but certainly the three Doctors and the five Doctors are not really have having that relationship with Jamie. I think the, the two Doctors gets the relationship wrong. The two of them are so wonderful and, and so inseparable. Yeah. You know, it's like um, Peter Davison and Tegan. Yeah. Sure. You can't really take that That is the primary companion for that Doctor, isn't mm. it? Yeah. yeah. And so I think he's really, really terrifically fun. Yeah. Um, but it's a very charming performance from Fraser Hines. <laughs> there's so many bits. There's the playing cards in the street. There's the bit where they're eating sandwiches together, where they just go on. And then the, where... He's playing with Jamie's radio and he's so yeah. anxious that he's going to break it. Yeah. My favourite part is when they're on the radio together, they're just a great double act. Like, uh, <laughs> Jamie, Jamie keeps yelling things and he's like, no, Jamie, stop, stop. It's so funny to hear him on the other end. And, of course, our third companion, uh, Zoe Harriet, played by uh, the eternally youthful <laughs> Wendy Padbury. Oh, Wendy. So, um, uh, Zoe is one of my favourite companions and I think she's so well played by Wendy. Um I sort of came to the Patrick Trout era after I'd seen a lot of Colour Doctor Who. So to have someone like Zoe, who was the sort of perky, cheeky Doctor Who girl we get more in the 70s, but also to have that keen analytical mind, which we only sporadically get afterwards. Um, We get it in spades here, though. yeah, Yeah, exactly. And... I would also like to say that the the cat suit outfit, the spangly cat suit that she has in this story and also previously in the Mind Rubber, I actually had one made up for a costume, <laughs> but, uh, which I have since reused in Doctor Who in Ten Seconds on YouTube, which uh, Nathan filmed me spinning around in his office chair screaming. I must have missed that. I would never, have, I would never have forgotten that if I'd and, seen it. And um, I've also used it in drag impersonating Liza Minnelli. So <laughs> of it's it's um, 
But, you know, we look at that now and that's outrageous. But that was the kind of thing that TV heroines were wearing at the time. It's you know, so true. This is 1968. It's a year after Emma Peel on IT, uh, ITC, is it? Yep, that's right. And, of course, Tara King. Tara yes. King didn't usually really wear cat suits, but certainly some glittery outfits mm. here and there. Uh, but oh, And also Zoe was from the future. That's yeah. So you had this tension yeah. of Jamie being from the past and not being stupid, but not being knowledgeable. That's he right. Stupid. <laughs> <He's> <laughs> stupid. I assume uh, you, you got to assume that he can't read or write. Right? He well, does he's read just been in with, this, he, but he's yeah. just been with the Doctor for a really long time. You're so that. I think he's been tutored in the same way that maybe Ace was tutored yeah. by the Doctor sure. as well. or Leela, or Leela, yeah, yeah. more on the yeah. fundamentals. Yeah. And whereas Zoe, being from the future, kind of has. Knowledge, but not necessarily experience. Yeah, he gets gets, gets silly things wrong, but is super smart. Mm. Yeah, it's a great TARDIS team. I mean, yeah. really, really so charming and so <laughs> lovely. And and Fraser Hines used to said they used to call themselves the uh, the shortest show on earth because Pat, <laughs> Pat, Pat was five six, he was five seven, and Padders was three five foot one. Because <laughs> <laughs> we were watching, yeah, I keep saying we were watching it last night. She is like uh, when she stands next to the major, she is barely at nipple height. Like she is. <laughs> So she's a she looks like a, like a twelve year old. No disrespect to Wendy Padbury, she is really small, yeah. much smaller than yeah. I remember. Well, not long before Doctor Who, she was still playing teenagers mm. and preteens, right? And Doctor Who, I don't think was her first adult role, if you like, playing an adult character. But it was certainly very early on for her, and she does talk about you know it was so different, not just being given the yeah. child role or the sure. teenage role, but being given this, as she is in her first story, scientific professional. Yeah. And unlike a lot of other Doctor Who companions who are introduced with a conceit (laughs) of, you know... um they know a lot about biology or they're a mathematical genius. Or a botanist. Or they a botanist. know very little about telebiogenesis. <laughs> <laughs> they're a computer programmer. Yeah, computer. <laughs> Zoe actually gets to use yes. her scientific knowledge it's all so the true. way through. Yeah. She has some agency and she gets to use that, that knowledge to show, yeah, it, yeah. show it off. And um, I mean, there's a great bit late, much later on in the story, but I won't get to that yet. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and the TARDIS team is ably aided, I think, by a, a, a series of... Um, characters that are just eminently watchable in mm. this story so we've got let's let's start off with unit initially i suppose we've got the re- returning and much loved character of He's alistair gordon lethbridge stewart now made for the first time brigadier a, a, an immortal of the show really he he's He's so good in this. He just does so many different things so well. He does that sort of smug smile where he knows what's going to happen. Yeah. Or uh, he's imperious and, and yells at people. But it feels like, I don't know, was Nick Courtney, like, this is his second second time on the show, but sure. was he? Did they, did, was they, did they already intend to make him a regular? Because it feels like he's playing the guts out of this to, to keep the role. At, <laughs> at this point, sort of. He was asked during production if he'd uh, consider taking on a regular role. Um, so... Derek Sherwin, who would become producer later on in this year, was given this idea by Kit Pedler to develop into a script. And it was Derek Sherwin who suggested, well, this could be a good idea to have an Earthbound story leading into more Earthbound stories, which it will in the future, and also giving the Doctor a wider team. And he was remembering Quatermass and things like that. So it was about halfway through production that... Uh, Derek Sherwin asked Nicholas Courtney, would you consider for the 69 to 1970 series coming back in a regular role? And Courtney accepted straight away, Mm. thankfully. 
Yeah. Well, he's just playing it, playing his life, playing the life out of it. Just yeah, every scene is great. He's vastly different from his previous appearance in Web of Fear, where he's True. kind of you know paranoid and a bit annoying and mm. things. He, he's super calm. Yeah. He doesn't quite have that that wry smile that he ends up with in season seven. He doesn't really think the Doctor's ridiculous in the way that he goes on to think that he is. But he's, it's like he's going to play the character who gives the Doctor his, his mission for the story, I think. Yeah, I, I think, though, that's quite believable because in Web of Fear, he's someone who's facing the unknown, in this case, the Yeti, for the first time. He's sort of come to understand that Earth is under threat um, after that, and we have the formation of unit in between the Web of Fear and this story. And now, I suppose, he's just starting to, to get to grips with that character, but he's not quite the brigadier that we know and love in the, in mm. the unit, 1970, John Pertwee sort of era. Just quite yet, but it's you can see so much is already in that performance. He just has that hint of a wry smile when he, when he convinces the rocket... Uh, engineers to give Zoe 30 seconds. Give me 30 seconds. Give her what she asks, Major. 30 seconds. But sir, this is ridiculous. Just 30 seconds. Just thirty seconds. Yeah. That's the scene. That's the scene that's I was it. talking about. Where yeah. then the the rocket the rocket commander says to Zoe, "I hope you're right." And she says, "I am." Yeah. <laughs> um, now it's interesting, Nathan, that you should say that he's not quite the same character. That's where a recent series of books has come in. Ah, the yes. Le- the Lethbridge Stewart books from Candy Jar. Um, now I've only read one, but the premise behind them is they're set between the Web of Fear and the invasion. And they're telling stories about Lethbridge Stewart and Anne Travers Such a and good her idea. father um, solving alien mysteries yeah. and what have you. And they've been immensely popular. Mm. Um, so, yeah, do go check them out. We also have um, Sally Faulkner playing the incredible Isabel Watkins, yeah. a character who I fell in love with, with as a very young boy <laughs> and to this day. Um, her sort of buddy um, relationship that she has with Zoe is a real highlight, I think, in this story. Mm -hmm. I think also what's nice is the relationship between her and Jimmy that develops during the course of the story. (laughs) Perhaps I can compensate by buying you dinner. That'd be nice. Hey, are you stinking rich? (laughs) Not on a captain's pay, I'm not. Uh, Not my day, is it? I think she's absolutely marvellous. I mean, I can imagine if I'd been watching at the time, uh, and this uh, comes out about six months before I was born, um, but if I had been watching at the time, um, in utero perhaps, <laughs> I would have been ba- disappointed that we didn't get Anne Travers back because Anne Travers is so superb. I mean, yeah. She's clearly intended to come back. I mean, Professor Watkins seems to be, you know... Professor uh, Travers's replacement, really. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but she's so charming and so wonderful <laughs> and so fabulously sixties. Yeah. 60s, yes. you know, it's such a great period detail. Yeah. She's so Carnaby Street. She's so like you know late sixties. <laughs> the, the the Beatles are going on, yeah. and it's just it's just perfect. She she bought that um, gramophone from a barrow in the Portobello Road. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think she's wonderful, and indeed, she. This is essentially her audition to be the companion. Yeah, oh. I did read that. When when we get Earthbound, so she's never meant to stay on past the end of this story. I don't know if she was ever asked, but that's certainly how she was developed mm. and why Sally was cast. That's really fascinating because I mean, Nathan, you mentioned earlier um, Anne Travers, and she's very much in my mind like the Liz Shaw kind of character that we get in Series Seven, whereas um, Sally Faulkner's Isabel Watkins is is. Uh, eminently likable, a little bit ditzy, but actually quite competent in many ways as well. 
And that's kind of like a proto-Joe Grant. Yeah. Well, I think that um, she wouldn't fit into season seven because mm. season seven is so relentlessly gun and so yeah. serious. Mm. Yep. And she brings, like, she makes fun of the whole thing and just brings every, a little bit of levity into this story. Every yeah. solution she offers her, every thing, it seems like comments, she says it like it's common sense, like it's like it's silly that they haven't realised it yet. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. You know, it's funny you should say that because around this time and leading into 1970, there was a show called The Strange Report, okay. which starred Anthony Quayle as a private investigator with two offsiders, one of whom was a, a female artist. She made artworks, she made paintings, played by Annika Wills. Oh, <laughs> but she was Polly. also oh, a sort of investigator and crime fighter. So that's what's happening, I believe, on the other side. I believe that was an ITC that's program. Interesting. So it's very much in the ether then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, regarding uh, Professor and Anne Travers, mm-hmm. they were in the original outline. Right, sure. And now the only reason they're substituted for Watkins and Isabel is, of course, Jack Watling, who'd played Professor Travers previously mm-hmm. in The Web of Fear and Abominable Snowman. He was a big-name actor. Mm-hmm. And as you might notice in this, the part for Professor Watkins is quite small. That's true. And so they didn't even approach him. They oh, thought, this oh. isn't a big enough part for him. And we can't we can't expand wow. it. The other thing was Henry Lincoln and Mervyn Hazeman, who created mm-hmm. the Brigadier, Professor Travers, and Anne Travers. Um, pretty much, they'd already had a falling out with the production team that we won't go into. But they agreed to the use of the Brigadier. The uh. BBC, however, investigated. Okay, can we create a new Professor? and daughter character and not have to pay them. (laughs) (laughs) So BBC. And the BBC said, yes, that's fine, but any military officer you create is essentially the brigadier from the previous, or the colonel from the previous story. Mm. So it was like, okay, if we're going to have to pay them anyway, we'll get Nick Courtney back. But if the BBC Mm -hmm. had said, no, it can be anyone... (gasps) we probably wouldn't have had Nick Courtney back. Oh, wow. Because they couldn't have even cast him in a new role because that would have given the writers even more... Sure. That's God, amazing wow. to think so. We came so close to not having the Brigadier just, as we knew just him. Just a tiny little turn and it would have been amazing. Wow. Um, one other interesting little tidbit for you, Stephen, is uh, Henry Lincoln is also known as Henry Soskin, who was in the Avengers episode Death a la carte. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Thank you, Brendan. Brendan and I share a very strong love for the Avengers. <laughs> so looking behind the camera and at our production team, this is the era of Peter Bryant. So we met him originally when we did our Tomb of the Cybermen episode, yeah, and that was right. his first story way back at the beginning of uh, season five. They were trying him out, right? That was yeah, the first I time think he so. got so to obviously do... past the audition because he's, he's still around um, here into season six with, with the invasion. Um, what do we think of Peter Bryan? What's his legacy to Doctor Who? Um, Peter Bryan's a bit of an odd one because from various reports I've heard, unlike Innes Lloyd, John Wiles, Verity Lambert, he didn't particularly have a sci-fi vision. Mm-hmm. His vision was to make an entertaining television show. Sure. And this is something we discussed when we went through... Um, this era on flight through entirety peter bryant was particularly interested in the american market Mm -hmm. which is why that middle season focuses so heavily on sort of monster of the week yeah it's kind of the same story for base under siege siege. (laughs) um but that being said i think he sets out what he achieves to do he makes an entertaining show and kind of leaves it to the actors to fill in the character mm-hmm. while the production team are interested in, in story. 
Um, yeah, and on this occasion, he's he's very wisely decided to take Kit Peddler's idea and ask Derek Sherwin to work on it. Kit Peddler, of course, wanted to be more involved in the writing of it, <laughs> but he was kind of too at- mad. he he was he was a scientist and an ideas person with not much idea of narrative yeah i agree yeah and derek sherwin has said about this story yeah kit peddler's idea covered about four episodes (laughs) and we had eight i'm amazed he covered four to be honest Um, (laughs) kit peddler's a great um sort of ideas man i think as you say i just sort of have this image of him having been hired by the bbc they sort of realize that he's not enough of a writer more of an ideas man so they've put him in an office somewhere and it's sort of just jabbering on all day and and the production team will come to visit him and you know listen to some of these ideas and then go away and actually take them and, and write them rather than him sort of sitting down to the typewriter and, 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 and producing anything himself all he gets here is a from a story by that's Craig. right yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they misspell his name as well. <laughs> <laughs> so uh kit peddler of course Maybe as a response to his frustration of being the from an idea by on the last few cyber stories, um, would go on to develop Doomwatch very shortly after this, and that's very much based in taking a scientific idea to a science fiction extreme of how it could mm. endanger humanity, and that was something he was interested in when he and Jerry Davis created the Cybermen. Um, now, not that's something that. Uh, has also massively suffered from archive purges and what have you. I think all of season two exists, but just a couple of season one and half of season three, right, something like that. Right. And there was even its final episode produced called Sex and Violence was um, seen as inappropriate for broadcast because it directly <sighs> lampooned Mary Whitehouse. <laughs> so, as, as well as other moral crusading public figures. So uh, if you do enjoy the ideas of Kit Peddler, do check out Doomwatch. <laughs> mm. it's, it's him and Jerry Davis uh, who were the writers for all of those episodes. Is that right? If if not all, then definitely yeah. definitely the majority. It was very much their their baby and what they viewed science fiction as. So it might even give you an idea of if they had been in charge of Doctor Who, mm. because Jerry Davis, of course, went on to become a producer of other things. If they had been in charge of Doctor Who well, we may not have gotten much difference in the Pertwee era because Doomwatch is kind of scientists on modern day Earth investigating strange things. Yeah, that's true. But it's, it is Derek Sherwin who writes this yeah. and he later becomes a producer in this season and then sort of the handover period um, in, in season seven with Spearhead from Space as well. Um, how do we evaluate his sort of impact on, on, on the series? It's a little bit hard to disentangle everyone, I think, towards the end of the 1960s. Mm. And I think in our conversation before, we were talking about the revolving door of the production team. Right. Sometimes hard to keep track of. I think that um, season six, this season, gets more inventive and more interesting um, and is certainly much more interesting than season five, which everyone's supposed to love, but... I really don't like very much at all. I think there's some good stories there, but it suffers from the fact that it's the same story yeah. all yeah. year round. Oh, it, I mean, it's got Enemy of the World in it's the middle. It's great fun. Yeah, yeah true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
and then it's, I think he sort of nails the formula, um, certainly for me in tomb, um, but, you know, that might be debatable. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but as you say, season six is much more varied. We have, you know, things as crazy and wild as, as uh, the mind robber next to the invasion, next to something like the war games, a 10-part epic. Yeah. And Even that, the space pirates yeah. is, you know, trying to do something different. True. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and tiresome. <laughs> oh, God. I think one thing that we can agree on, though, is just how superb the direction is. It's it's Douglas Campfield. I've said before, my favourite classic Doctor Who director of all time. Uh, I think he does an incredible job here. And it's because of him that we have uh, Nick Courtney, of course, because mm. he's the person who's cast Nick Courtney three times now. That's right. Um, but he's so careful with shot composition without being too arty, mm. I think. So the show looks beautiful. Mm. It makes you notice it. Like, it makes you notice that the shots are great, but it's not, like, wrenching your neck around to make sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, I think there are more sort of stylish, more modern directors mm. later in the series' run. But he's so solid and so dependable. And even his last story, which you guys have covered, mm. um, is so beautiful. <laughs> he's really, really something. Yeah, I mean, there's the shots here that are cribbed from things like Sergei Eisenstein's um, uh, Battleship Potemkin in terms of the Cybermen coming down the, the stairs. There's a beautiful series of shots in the the, uh, uh, the sewers, I suppose, which yeah. echo really for me the Web of Fears underground shots as yeah. well. Just kept they saying, look real. It just looked like the, those sewers just look like the third man sewers to me. And yes. And bringing me to that. Yeah. But he's, yeah, he's never, never seems to be lazy with shots. He's never no. just phoning it in. A lot of the times we're, in, we're just in an office or in a rocket room or wherever but it, it's never lazy it's no, always interesting yeah there's there's tight shots there's there's mid shots I mean, obviously it sort of follows the uh, the course of the narrative in a way that I think is probably more familiar to more modern audiences in terms of the televisual language mm. than the sort of point and shoot three cameras I think we probably yeah. got for the 60s and the 70s and a bit of the 80s as well and it's snappy like like we said before eight parts should be should feel like eight parts but this really doesn't it really yeah. barrels along yeah and I think the direction's got a lot to do with yeah. that Behind the scenes, also, we've neglected to mention the master. Oh, he really the is. The king. <laughs> well, a man that I'm campaigning to have uh, knighted by Her Majesty <laughs> Terence Sticks for his services uh, to childhood yes. literacy. He's the script editor here. <laughs> Contribu- <laughs> contributions to childhood literacy. That's because he did so many of the novelizations. Yeah, he did about 70 odd, oh, I think. Something like that. Mm-hmm. So, so many times when I went to the library to pick, pick one up, it would be yeah. by Terence Sticks. You just got to know his style so well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he was quite new to the show at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, at, while he was working on this, though, he was also working on The Crotons. Yes. Which, that was the first story he commissioned and kind of got him the job for the next five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also does a great job on this story because we discussed script editors on both our podcasts before mm-hmm. And much later script editors, they have a creative vision for the show. Sure. You know, Robert Holmes uh, wants to put on a gothic horror. Anthony reads about True. books. Bidmead's about science. Saywood wants to present realistic violence. Yes. And murder people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andrew Cartmel, of course, wanted to bring mystery into it. Terence Dix's motivation in being the script editor was making sure that the BBC didn't have to show the test card for 25 (laughs) minutes on a Saturday evening. (laughs) More than that, I think that, like Derek Sherwin and Peter Bryant, he was concerned with 
I want to make an entertaining, mm-hmm. not test card. I think it's cracking, fast-moving yeah. action set pieces that he's good at. Yes. He's great at telling adventure stories. Yeah. And there are some smashing ones in this, including, <laughs> uh, you know, the sadly missing episode four, you know, helicopter rescue from yeah. a building. Yeah. Is it episode four that goes out on the fifth anniversary of um, An Unearthly Child? That is correct. Episode four goes out on the 23rd of November, (laughs) 1968. It's the fifth anniversary special. (laughs) So you started, obviously, with uh, An Unearthly Child. Um, Just think that in five years, (laughs) people were being rescued off the top of buildings by (laughs) (laughs) helicopter. Yeah, from that... From the, uh, the from Todd's Lane, Todd's Lane, yeah. <laughs> so here, it doesn't seem real. Does it? Uh, that uh, and that scene with people being rescued by the helicopter is, of course, the famous scene where um, Fraser Hines took some advice from the Queen. Okay, so I only found uh, this out last night. <laughs> so rehearsing the scene, of course, Isabel and Zoe are wearing mini skirts and having to go up the the ladder to the. To the um, to the helicopter, helicopter, to the helicopter yeah. and Fraser Hines suddenly realised he's wearing a kilt. <laughs> <laughs> now um, the way he tells it is the costume designer was on the shoot but was going fishing because there was a stream <laughs> near this factory and so at lunch sewed lead weights into Jamie's kilt because <laughs> Fraser Hines had heard that's what the Queen does when the Queen boards a helicopter. She has lead sewn into her Amazing. skirts so it doesn't fly up. Because you can never have the Queen's skirt fly up when she's getting on a helicopter. That's right. Because and the thing is, the whole cast had been ribbing Fraser. Oh, you know, when when you go up the ladder, we're going to see what a Scotsman wears under his kilt. And the big thing was, he didn't want to disappoint them because it was actually football shorts because he liked having a kick around between scenes. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so, Steve, have you got a startlingly beautiful one-sentence line that will sum up this story for us? I, I don't, but I have this. It's the second Doctor lands in 1968 England, where he becomes embroiled in an Ipcris file-styled game of cat and mouse in parts one to four, and in a good old alien invasion of Earth by a very familiar enemy in parts five to eight. It is split into two, isn't it? It's four Mm. and four. I think so, yeah. And I think actually that's one of the other reasons why, as an eight-parter, it doesn't sag. It's not the same story. We have... You know, a, a real sort of um, nod to the spy-fi genre, which is huge, by the way, at this point in, in Britain in particular. We have the Avengers, mm. the aforementioned Chris file. James Bond is still a global phenomenon. And I think it riffs on that through the way in which, you know, we see the Doctor and Jamie are stalked by who we later find out to be Benton. And in, a to in a suit. In a suit, yeah, looking weird. very suave <laughs> in a jag. Um, and then um, later on, we, we sort of switch to, you know, Simon bursting out of sewers and, and, and um, descending the steps of, of St. Paul's. And I think that that's sort of marks that second phase of that story, um, which you would never, I don't think, have even anticipated watching certainly the first two episodes of sure. The Invasion. I think that uh, the Radio Times cover actually spoils the fact (laughs) that there are Cybermen in this story. So I think we do know going in. And then it is sort of gradually revealed. So you've got... There's hints, isn't there? The little little cyber logo at the end of um, episode one, I think. There's a little flash of a cyber logo in there. On the animated version. Yeah, yeah, sure. When the cyber director, is it the cyber director, is revealed? Yeah, cyber director. Let's, let's I don't go think with it. anyone's ever called. Yeah, it's <laughs> definitely not. I cyber think it's director. a cyber planner, but anyway. <laughs> He's known from planet morphine. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, so I suppose we should um, open the door and walk into Spoiler Town. So let me just raise this um, this door in Vaughn's office. Okay. 
Ever so slowly. Uh, okay, it's slowly. We're almost there. We're, it's just slowly raising. We'll be in. Just a sec. Give it a sec, guys. Can you open the door? <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, almost. And, okay, okay. alright, let's just walk through, who cares? We're in Spoiler Town. Uh, this is why the story's eight episodes. <laughs> I really think that this, the, 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 um, the cyber invasion would have been brought forward by a couple of days if he just had a faster door. <laughs> just needs to slide. It doesn't need to... Just open it with your hand. Like, oh, just a regular door. Do Never mind. Do you think it goes up in that sort of weird way just to be visually more interesting? I think or so. because yeah. Yeah. they didn't have enough be, space well, in the set. Uh, well, it'd be weird if he just opened a regular doorknob door and it's, <laughs> it's just sitting in a cupboard. That would just be weird. Because it is a cupboard, really, kind yeah. of. Just I th- a- yeah, I think if you were going to open it as a regular door, it needs to be sitting there in a smoking jacket, <laughs> in a velvet chair. <laughs> so I think it's the husband of the cyber planner from Wheel in Space. That's my theory. Because the Wheel in Space one is a sort of... I can't remember whether I said this on Flight Through Entirety. It's a sort of a light bulb wearing an yes. evening gown. Um, so this is, the, this is her husband. And... He's voiced by Peter Halliday. Who's also... Packer! Packer! (laughs) (laughs) He's wonderful in this. I think this is his star turning Doctor. He appears heaps of times. So he comes back and does a whole bunch of voices. Um, He's the vicar that we saw in Remembrance of the Daleks. He's the sort of slightly obtuse uh, guard to Leonardo in City of Death. But he's just so great here as Packer. He's so cruel at first and menacing and then just gradually... Segueing into terrified. Yeah. It's just wonderful. Yeah. And I a love bit incompetent too. There's a gorgeous, gorgeous double act, isn't there, at yeah. the heart of this story? <laughs> sure. So Tobias Vaughan and Packer. I yes. mean, they're so wonderful together. And they are the backbone of episodes yeah. one to four before the Cybermen turn up. True. Like we may have said before, Doctor's only as good as who he squares off against. And he's got not just the Cybermen, but Tobias Vaughan, who's I, like incredible villain. Kevin Stoney is, I think, my pick of like villain of the 60s. Uh, in sure. Doctor Who or villains of the series. well yeah if yes. you include Mavic Chen sure <laughs> <laughs> what the moment I love most with Tobias Vaughn and Packer is the beginning of episode 3 where Packer has caught the Doctor and Jamie mm-hmm. and Vaughn comes along and oh Packer you know you must treat them better <laughs> <laughs> and as Vaughn is escorting the Doctor and Jamie away he sort of turns back to Packer and sort of waves his finger like no no, no. <laughs> <laughs> my my favorite Packer part is e- easily the part where, because you know Tob- Tobias Vaughn constantly throughout the, the story yells out Packer, and then yeah. Packer comes on the screen. Usually, quick smart. There's one I can't remember remember why, but there's one where he says Packer, and there's a it maybe it focuses on the screen, and he's not there for a second, and then he. <laughs> He runs on screen and he's almost, <laughs> almost panting. It's like, what were you doing? so funny. I don't know if that was deliberate or just a quirk of editing. It's, I love it. He, he, he was off drinking Guinness with yeah, Pat. something. Yeah. Like, oh, master calls. Late from, late from lunch, yeah. <laughs> so great. And then that bits, of course, at the, towards the end, like, oh, it's so amazing when he calls Packer oh. and the cyber face comes onto that scanner. Oh, oh so yeah. great. And again, you've got that little bit of just sting of, of yes, kind the of music symbols there. or drums mm-hmm. there, yeah, and and of course that's Don Harper yes. in his only Doctor Who score, yeah. Um, because and there are conflicting reports. It's been reported for years that Douglas Campfield and Dudley Simpson uh, had an argument at a, dinner, at a dinner party in 1965. Uh, there's a new biography of Douglas Campfield that presents a different idea. I haven't oh. read it, but I've part of the okay. part of the publicity of it is just. 
if you think you know this story about D- Dudley and oh. and um, Dougie, think again. Wow. Um, so there may be something else to it, but it is true that after the Crusade, uh, Douglas Camfield didn't use Dudley Simpson again in That's Doctor right. Who, mm, yeah. but I believe he did in Blake Seven. No, no? in fact, <laughs> uh, Douglas Camfield only directs one episode of Blake Seven, and it's the only episode not scored by. Oh, Dudley. Uh-huh. maybe there is truth to it then. Is that the, <laughs> is that the Elizabeth Parker episode? Yes, that's right. right. Duel in season one. Mm. Mm. When are we doing the Blake Seven podcast? <laughs> What's this we? <laughs> <laughs> I'll come on occasionally. I've got the shaved head. I'll wear a ball gown. <laughs> <laughs> you fool, Nathan. <laughs> so, yeah, we do have Don Harper who pro- uh, provides the music. So, I mean... It's, it's a funny story and, you know, it, it probably works out well, I think, because Don Harper does some great stuff on this. We have that really beautiful, again, Ipcris sort of inspired John Barry types, guitars, um, yeah. twang, if you like, when, when we have the sort of spy-fi stuff going on, particularly when the Doctor's being haunt, um, hunted by, yeah. or seems to be hunted by, by the unit guys. Um, and there's, you know, really sort of wonderful metallic clanging stuff. It sort of prefigures Malcolm Clark in Earthshock when the Cybermen make their appearance, and I think it's very atmospheric and evocative of, you know, all things Cybermen when too. They, when they walk down the steps during the actual mm. invasion, and there's that strange electronic. It's beautiful. Yeah, really, really strange. The one, the one time I think that he misses the the, the oh, beat is. Yeah. That sort of bridge over the river choir yeah. inspired unit when, jaunt. When, when the unit cars yeah. are driving about. Yeah, yeah and it, it's, it'll be kind of continued next year mm-hmm. by Kerry Blyton, I think. It, with, you're talking about the, uh, the woodwind um, score, is it in season seven? Sorry, I beg your pardon, it's Ambassadors of Death. Ambassadors, yes. yes. Um, it's Dudley Simpson. Ah. And Mark Ayers has done a beautiful re-rendition of that. But for some reason, two, two early unit stories, it's like when unit's going to go shoot some people, we're going to have this jaunty music. <laughs> it does make them seem kind of silly. <laughs> oh so we've mentioned previously that there's almost like a four plus four structure to, this, to these eight episodes and that it doesn't drag. I mean, there's a number of, of key highlights and, you know, wonderful set pieces throughout. There's obviously the iconic set piece, which is, you know, the cliffhanger to episode six, yes. where the Cybermen emerge mm. from the sewers and start marching all over London. So and we've good. never, ever seen anything like this before. Mm-hmm. I mean, the closest the show's ever got is, you know, a few wooden boxes with sort of clubs attached that menace William Hartnell in the war machine. <laughs> We've had the Daleks crossing the, the bridge in London. It's yeah, not quite but the not same. in the present day. It's still... True. It's still... I mean, it's in the present day as far True. as the viewers yeah. are concerned. And so that is a hugely exciting, iconic moment. But I think, you know, this is our world or a slightly mm. more spy-fi version of our yeah. world, <laughs> yeah. um, which is actually being menaced. You know, the, the people at home... Uh, are at risk it's uh it's just tremendous and there's a reason i think why stephen moffat recreates that very scene for death in heaven Mm. yeah there's a rather wonderful theory that um missy we see has actually been watching the doctor on her ipad during series eight (laughs) you know she sees for instance um the disagreement between clara and the doctor in flatline and she's also watching at the end of In the Forest of the Night. So it's quite possible that she's gone, Ooh, what about that time in 1960... Sorry, 1979 or whatever, whatever year this story's set in. What about that time? Ooh, 
I've got a bunch of Cybermen. <laughs> I'm going to send them down the streets of St Paul. <laughs> I think that's charming. Yeah. I hope she was watching season six all the way through. <laughs> Do you remember this, sweetheart? <laughs> <laughs> Like Actually, she's idea. probably got episodes one and four, the saucy things. Yeah. Yeah, she's the one who's got them. It's not just the set pieces, though, is it? It's also the company that we keep for those eight, eight episodes. I mean, it's a vastly longer story than anything uh, your kind of intended audience would be used to. Sure. I mean, the longest new series story, if you count it, is what Utopia through to uh, Last of the Time Lords. Sure. Um, so this is over three hours long. And weeks and weeks when, yeah. when broadcast. Yeah, yeah it's like weeks. two months yeah. of Doctor Who mm. leading up towards Christmas. Mm. Um, but you have this group of characters who you get to know. And Doctor Who really is, you know, an exciting action-adventure serial at this point and doesn't go in for characterization. Mm. But just the developing romance between Isabel and Jimmy, just how wonderful Jimmy is. You know, these people become people that you've spent months with. They become, you know, like friends. And I think, I normally think that long Doctor Who stories tend to be tiresome Mm. and tend to sort of um, try your patience a bit. But one of the things that a long Doctor Who story gets to do is that... A bit yeah. of development. Yeah. I think, you know, Inferno the following year, which mm. I don't really like very much, mm. um, has the same thing. You get to know a group of characters really well who in are, a particular setting, and there's a real pleasure to that. I mm. think. Characters who are immediately killed at the end of the story. Yeah, oh, they get better. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> what is it that Russell T Davies said about Stephen Moffat? Stephen Moffat is a very talented writer who creates interesting, fascinating characters whom you love and then melts them. <laughs> <laughs> Something else I love about the characters in The Invasion is... In terms of the ongoing continuity of the show, we've just had the Dominators and the Mind Robber. Oh dear Lord. Now, the characters in the Mind Robber, by definition, are caricatures. They are our childhood memories yeah, of yeah, yeah. Gulliver. Um, the children are from a Victoriana novel, I think. Um, monsters like the Medusa. Then you get the Dominators, where the characters are just these awful ciphers telling you that peace is bad. Mm-hmm. Um Whereas now we are brought into the present day, and it is a heightened present day. It's that spy fi yeah. thing, you know. Yeah. Isabel is this is a model slash photographer. <laughs> She's a bit of an it girl. Yeah. Um, the soldiers aren't just mindless one dimensional pe- people. They have character. Possibly my favourite character moment in unit is in this whole story, and it kind of goes to show why he becomes a regular. It's towards the end of the story when they're waiting for the missiles to hit and everyone's silent everyone's uh, silent yes. and Benton drops a mug yeah. <laughs> and everyone spins around to him and John Levine just goes sorry sir <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's so, so Benton yeah it's so well done and bless John Levine he was meant to be a Cyberman in this yeah he was, he was originally cast as a Cyberman because he'd been a Yeti and a Cyberman before. And Douglas Campfield just really liked him. I think, sort of, he was the Yeti who complained the least on the web of fear. <laughs> nothing was too much trouble. So when he had this small role, a few lines, I need someone who looks a little like a junior soldier, I'll put uh, John Levine in there. And, yeah, it went on to be a, a lifelong association for mm. John Levine. In fact, I'd heard that the previous Benton had been sacked, hadn't he? That he'd turned up late and that uh, 
that John Levine was sort of hastily pulled out of a Cyberman costume and <laughs> sort of flung in the direction of the set in order to play I, Ben Stiller. I've heard the same, but I've never heard the name of who the original Ben Stiller was. They would never tell you no, that. probably not. <laughs> no. But all I can say is I'm really glad that we yeah. got um, John Levine. And he's not particularly trying to be a show stealer in no. his story. I mean, he's, there's, there's, you've got your sergeant and you've got your captain as well, both who are sort of equal, equal footing. In fact, I think he's someone we very nearly didn't have. And the only reason that we have him is that Douglas Canfield comes back the following year to direct Inferno and we know that he likes reusing actors, so he brought Benton back. That is actually true. And it was around that time they thought, well, actually, we should have a regular soldier under the Brigadier because Mm -hmm. we'd had... um, We'd had Jimmy Turner in this story. We get Jimmy Munro. It's a in whole series of different <laughs> well, Jimmy's. Uh, Captain Hawkins in the Silurians. Jimmy Hawkins. Jimmy Hawkins. <laughs> uh, he doesn't have a 2IC in Ambassadors of Death. True. And then John Levine is cast again in Inferno and hurriedly written into the closing episodes of Ambassadors of Death. Oh. Um, which is which lends us the theory that in Ambassadors of Death, it's Sergeant Benton who kills Cyril Shapps. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just think the Brigadier likes likes having a Jimmy around because he well he um, I only noticed this time, but he calls everyone else by their rank or surname yeah. except for Captain Turner, who he refers to as Jimmy. Well, when he talks about him to other people, he says Captain Turner. That's right. But he only he always says Jimmy, and it's almost tender. Mm. Like um, yeah, mm. I think it's because he's just terribly posh. Yeah, Jimmy is the poshest of the units. Maybe Jimmy went to the same school as yeah. the Brigadier or something. <laughs> there is a, um, a BBC book, I think it's Face of the Enemy, where the Brigadier has a night off, so he's off to have a drink with the two Jimmies. Uh, <laughs> I like that idea. I love that. Gary Russell probably killed off um, <laughs> killed off Captain Hawkins at some point, so yeah. they couldn't use him. No, Kate Orman put Corporal Bell in a car accident. Ah, Terrible. Well, she's she's a traitor in face of the enemy, so you know. Oh, so, so this one has a lot of uh, location shoots, and it's ably um, aided, I suppose, by the the British Army, who gave their resources, including a, a Hercules, yeah. for the shoot of this. Mm. The Hercules, I believe, was actually meant to be a chopper, which would then take them to the base, but oh. they couldn't. But the chopper arrived late, so they're like, "Well, how about we just have the base inside the Hercules?" <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, the sets being built later could accommodate that. Um, Imagine if season seven, the unit base had been oh a plane that they. I would watch the. Oh my god! <laughs> because they could just fly anywhere. Oh my god! That would have been so much fun. So Avengersy. That would have been great. Wow. Moffat brings it back, of course. Of course, yeah. Yeah, and that that was something I actually really loved about the Capaldi unit era they have this plane that they mm-hmm. use as a base which repeatedly gets blown up like it's in an episode of Thunderbird yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it would have fit so well it would have been great it's yeah. awesome isn't yeah. it imagine Jimmy and the Brigadier and stuff <laughs> flying around tremendous. the world yeah. international oh. rescue I mean unit <laughs> all we need to do is say it three times and Big Finish will put out <laughs> the, the funny thing is and I've heard people argue against this with the Hercules plane they kind of go oh yes but you know unit had to be set in the home counties because that's what they could film in and I just think you know what in the first two seasons of the Avengers which is entirely videotaped it's lo- it's produced like Doctor Who in fact they produce a 50 minute episode in a three hour recording session they have episodes in Argentina and Buenos Aires and Jamaica, you know, just with a bit of stock footage. Now, of course, we're nine years on from that, so the audiences expect a little bit more. But 
when we get to Tom Baker, Doctor Who does stories in Renaissance Italy yeah, by sure. going to Wales. Yeah, for exactly. Scotland. Right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Scotland on the south coast yeah. of England. Yes. <laughs> um, and can you can you guys can you tell me if those sewers are a set? Because there's a bit where they look down. He looks both ways down there, and it's like a long tunnel. Yeah, it's amazing. I think there's some. Um, like I think some, it's a painting or something? Yeah, I think it's a painting. It's a photo blow-up of the last time the set was erected, and that way they only need a little corner of it for, for Pat to go into. Um, something I forgot to mention with the soldiers, though, when the real soldiers turned up um, for the location shoot, uh, they, of course, had their own commanding officer, who was a uh, lieutenant, I believe. Well, they jumped out of the van, jumped, to, crashed to attention with the lieutenant, and then Nicholas Courtney comes around the corner and one of the men says, Sir, do we salute him, sir? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's um, great. The well, correct answer is yes. Yeah, always. Yeah. Uh, now, for Douglas Camfield, Douglas Camfield, of course, loved Nicholas Courtney, loved to have him back, but thought it was ridiculous to promote him to Brigadier. Oh. Now, the reason for this, of course, is that Dougie was in the army. Yeah, yeah. And... He said, a colonel, which is what the brigadier was before uh, this story, commands 900 men. Oh. A brigadier commands three times as much. And on Doctor Who, we had six. <laughs> <laughs> you never get I the impression. The <laughs> you don't get the, the impression of like hundreds and hundreds of unit soldiers. It seems like a, a small, I say crack team, but they, you know, they, yeah, maybe, maybe not crack. <laughs> maybe not crack. There are quite a few, aren't there, in the final uh, sort of assault on... The pitched battle, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I think that's true. Yeah, that looks quite cinematic. And again, Douglas Camfield does some great stuff there. I can only assume, though, Brendan, would they have just got like the, the squaddies in from, from the army to do that? Or was that actually some stuntmen? Uh, for the fight with the Cybermen at the end, it was a combination. So you had stuntmen like Terry Walsh and oh, Alan Chunce in there. Yeah. Um, you also had about 15 extras and the 2nd Battalion of the Coldstream Guards were the real army officers. And there was sort of some reciprocal coaching going on. The extras nice. were saying to the soldiers, OK, you, so the camera's there, you need to kind of be here. Whereas the soldiers were saying, no, no, you'd hold your gun like this. <laughs> and apparently everyone got along famously. And the soldiers sort of thought this is a wonderful time. The army were happy to do it because the army were being... Represented free promotion, as, yeah. Yeah, free promotion. They're defending the earth from mm-hmm. invading monsters. They're yeah. on the same side as Doctor Who. Yeah. So yeah, it was apparently a really, really fun day's shoot. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to talk about the cyber design? I do. This is my favourite Cyberman design of the classic Doctor Who era. And I say that because um, I didn't get to see Earthshock in the eighties Cyberman stories until well into the nineties, right? Um, but I do remember target novelizations with this particular Cyberman design, including erroneously the Tomb of the Cyberman, <laughs> yeah. but also you know the Re- Revenge of the Cyberman and actually the Invasion, the novelization, which I read probably a thousand times before I actually got to see this as well later on in life. So, so to me, this. You know the wetsuit and the uh, the jug the helmet, silver Doc Martens. Yeah, silver Doc Martens as well. <laughs> Even is... Cybermen have to lace up. <laughs> <laughs> they have that... such a weird crotch as well. There's some sort of codpiece thing going on. Well, the thing is, we've looked at wetsuits um, a lot for Bondfinger for mm. episodes <laughs> like um, Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt, and that's what wetsuits have. They had, I think, it was something to do with freedom of movement. It had to be a separate piece around the crotch. <laughs> to which the legs would attach. 
Um, this is my favourite cyber design oh, as well. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, simply, it gets. For me, it gets the proportions right. Yeah. I love the 80s design, but I feel the chest unit is too small. Uh-huh, sure. Here, the chest unit, I believe, is the same chest unit they used on the previous Cybermen. They've just turned it upside down and put new lights in it. Uh-huh. And, of course, the light-up weapon. We get the earmuffs for the first time love on the it. helmets. It's, like, it's sort of like big 70s hair. It's yeah. giant. They've got yeah. giant, giant heads. <laughs> like It's certainly something the new series hasn't gone back to. Mm. It's almost as if... For the new series, the the Apex is wheel in space design. Yeah, with the tear yeah. duct as well. And just tear the duct. smaller heads. Yeah. They do have big giant heads. <laughs> <laughs> and they've got they didn't they didn't they screw the back plate into the head? Isn't it didn't have to be screwed on? Uh, certainly by the time of the eighties. Yeah. I'm not so sure with these ones. Sure. That's yeah. what there's that there's that famous picture of a Cyberman having a cigarette possibly yes. because <laughs> you couldn't be bothered taking the helmet off. Um and you know they've got the they've got the rigid pipes down their arms, yeah. which of course uh, kept breaking, but they look great on yeah. camera. I just want to, for a moment, return to the incredible Kevin Stoney as Tobias Vaughan, managing director of International <laughs> Electromatics, who I, I seriously believe, in terms of villains, not monsters, but a villain is the greatest villain on uh, Doctor wow. Who in the nineteen sixties. I um I have a thing called the Doctor Who Club at school, where uh, one lunchtime a week, a bunch of uh, kids come to my classroom and we watch an episode of classic who and we did once uh do the invasion and there was one older boy who just used to laugh out loud after every single (laughs) tobias vaughan line and it's such a brilliant performance because he is usually so genial and cheerful and unflappable the Mm -hmm. first setback that we see him suffer is where zoe you know, says out loud a computer program in Algol yeah, oh and makes God. the computer blow up. And he's there watching it laughing. Yeah. He thinks it's so funny. <laughs> and it, it's not maniacal laughter. And he just seems like he would just be the world's most genial employer. <laughs> except every so often he just loses Explodes, it. Explodes, yeah. yeah. And it. both of those registers are such fun. Mm. He's so great. He's Hank Scorpio from The Simpsons, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a Bond villain. But there's a few different Vaughns. Like you say, there's the smug, smarmy, mm-hmm. like, la- almost laughing uh, Vaughn, and then there's the exploding Vaughn. And then at the end, uh, once he realizes... The broken man. The broken man. And, he's yeah. so, and he went, even when he recovers, he's still desperate. And it's just so great. Come, really comes comes alive it's such a good idea too to pair him with pat mm. for that scene so so what happens is of course vaughn learns that the cybermen are, are bombing the earth and he has to do something about it and that's what brings the change about and it's all about him it's all about his betrayal but having that change happen in a in a two-hander scene with uh, the, you know the best actor yeah. ever to play the doctor yeah. is so amazingly good mm. and even the lead up to that where everything's going on outside the invasion has started there's bombs coming the army's running around trying to make a defense and we cut back to the doctor and tobias vaughn and vaughn is staring out the window and the doctor is sitting at the desk just mm. playing with something and neither of them raises their voice and mm. they just talk very very quietly <laughs> you know whereas we're moving into a a era where doctor who villains will become very shouty yeah and Arch. often played by stephen thorne <laughs> in that regard and you know he's very very good with that so but to have this instead i mean god a month before this, we've had the Dominators just screaming oh, mm. at each other constantly, yeah. you know. Um, 
Whereas when someone screams at you, your brain automatically shuts down. It's a defense mechanism. Yeah. It's this loud noise, you know, quite beyond any aggression. That's, that's an evolutionary reaction, sure. you know. Um, whereas, you know, Tobias Vaughn reels you in like this and then will all of a sudden... Packer, you're a stupid incompetent! <laughs> you're a stupid incompetent! I want that doctor for the whole compound alert! Have everybody available to of the job! Find him, Packer! Find him! <laughs> and that moment where he slams down on the desk yeah. and jumps up into frame and sure. starts screaming is so powerful because he hasn't done anything That's like so that true before. yeah and you know a few scenes later he's back to you know packer packer <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, you he's... do that so well <laughs> <laughs> i i love how because later on whenever there's cybermen or daleks there's often a, a conspirator who thinks that they're gonna yeah they're gonna um you know, pair up with these Daleks or Cybermen and, you know, rule with them or whatever. And you always know that it's going to be a betrayal. You know that they'll never, as soon as they've outlived their perp, their usefulness. Um, but this, with Vaughn, uh, he's got a plan. You know, he's got he's secretly working on a weapon. They've mm. actually given him a plan B. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which they don't do after this very much. It's usually just your, um, your ringways and your other people who are constantly surprised. Sure. Mm. Hellman. Yeah. <laughs> Deflores. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, even back in the Daleks master plan Which was Kevin Stoney again yes. As mm. Marvik Chen mm. um, Marvik Chen doesn't have a backup plan mm. Yeah that's true and, But again he's got Marvik Chen has got the shouty thing That he occasionally does And the sort of smarmy thing They're completely different to mm. what he does As Tobias Vaughn That's true um, Marvik Chen you know, is a lot more sort of no coward <laughs> in its cheerfulness. Whereas his shoutiness is very Shakespearean. Enough. It's not that blind rage he goes into with yeah. Packer at times. Yeah. And, I mean, Kevin Stoney guessed it in everything. He was in The Prisoner. He was in The Saint. He was in The Inspector Avengers. Morse. Inspector Morse. Two Blake Seven episodes. <laughs> the Tomorrow People. He slums it in the Tomorrow People. And uh, I mean, I haven't seen much Tomorrow People, but I saw one with him, and I got to the final closing credits. And I'm like, so they got Kevin Stoney in, and he's not playing a villain. <laughs> that's everything that's wrong with this show right here. <laughs> he's born to play a villain, isn't he? Mm. And how he was never a Bond villain, I don't know. Yeah, no, yeah, isn't that strange? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose him and Julian Glover. That's cool. Even though they did films, I think during the seventies it really became you were a film actor or you were a television yeah, actor, and there true. was very little crossover. Sadly, because I think Kevin Stoney's Blofeld would have oh. knocked spots off Donald yeah. Pleasance or, or even Charles Gray, and I really like Charles Gray, but Telly Savalas, I think he would have been better than him. <laughs> oh my you, Telly Savalas! It's, it's a classic <laughs> film. I, I, don't know. I love Honor Majesty's Secret Service, but that's another point. We're digressing. <laughs> We're getting sideways of ourselves. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the Cybermen? Um, I think it's important to sort of uh, understand the context of the Cybermen, particularly as they appear here on modern day Earth or contemporaneously to the audience on modern day Earth. Um, there's a number of really important things that are happening in terms of the way in which technology is starting to encroach on everyday life. And I think that sort of um, hesitance and maybe even sort of fear around um, you know, the way in which 
um, not just you know our body parts can be replaced you know etc which is still science fiction to a large degree to to the extent of the siphon but more so the way in which you know surveillance and computers and and technology seems to be all pervasive in our life these uh, these days that sort of started in the 60s um, that's your international electromatics, having yeah. a little chip in every piece of electronics. It's Apple, in a way, when sure. you think about it. It's, it's, yeah. it's a multi-transnational computer-based corporation led by a very charismatic, cult of personality type of leader. It's not Who to loses d- it with his employees <laughs> from time to time. <laughs> so, it's, yeah, I think it's sort of present in that way. And it's, it's interesting in a sense because we see, we see the doctor who... Um, he says explicitly and outright he hates computers. Yeah. And that's really interesting to me because obviously, you know, the doctor is someone that, you know, in modern times at least, modern audiences associate with, uh, you know, Te- someone technologically technology. advanced. Yeah. Exactly, and embracing of all of those things. So, I don't know, maybe, what do you guys think of, like, how that sort of comes across? Is it problematic? Do you think it sort of Mars or, you know, very much oh. dates that in 1968? It does in a way, but it is the thing that Russell T. Davies goes back to when he relaunches the Cybermen in 2006. And the word cyber had uh, acquired a different connotation then, and so it becomes uh, the way that we're all consuming things on the internet. We have connected... Uh, we're all connected to each other we all stare at our yeah. phones all the yeah. time and I think that's the 2006 version of this 1960s that's fear a good point, yeah. on the doctor's reluctance to trust computers it kind of goes back to William Hartnell who says in The Keys of Marinus yeah. um, I do not believe that computers should make laws and I think what it's speaking to here as well is the Doctor's faith in sentience and intelligence to determine for itself. When he first meets Zoe and uh, Zoe is trying to figure out why the Silver Carrier is orbiting the wheel in space, now the Doctor suspects there might be Cybermen on board, Zoe doesn't know that yet. So Zoe's computer analysis can't possibly come up with the right answer. Mm. And the Doctor says, computers merely enable you to be wrong with authority. (laughs) And I think, so it's not necessarily the doctor saying we shouldn't use technology because of course he's intrigued by Vaughan's radio mm. he uses a walkie-talkie quite happily drives a car not in this story he doesn't use it in this story but he's got the sonic screwdriver mm. but he believes it has to be tempered with human or human-like intelligence yeah. and that's that becomes the tension because the Cybermen have removed emotion the 60s kind of see that as the Cybermen not having emotional intelligence like humanity and that was proved back in the 10th planet where the Cybermen sort of argue with Polly about emotions and as we've discussed before they kind of win that because they point out to Polly well there's people dying all over your planet and you don't care but it's so the Cybermen can see the whole picture but can't care about it whereas (laughs) humanity can just see little bits but they can care Mm. Um, yeah. I, I also think that there's a big 60s problem with not knowing what computers actually are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so you've got the computer in Vaughan's hallway, which has a much better version of Siri than my phone does, <laughs> yeah. um, which you can program by talking to it in a programming language, and it explodes when you give it some kind of recursive algorithm rather than just using up memory and falling over. And thankfully, it's always at exactly the right piece of tape. Yes. (laughs) Keeps rewinding and going back. I have a kinder reading of this, as I tend to do, um, and that is that 
it's not necessarily that the doctor hates computers, but he seems to think that this is a sort of primitive version of a computer. Here he is, a time lord <laughs> from Gallifrey. The Matrix is infinitely <laughs> superior and, you know, it's almost like a living organism in terms of an, a, 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 a sort of computer network. To him, this sort of machine, you know, voice in a box is, it doesn't even compare. It's sort of like, a, I don't know, uh, a really sort of basic form of technology as compared to, mm-hmm. to what he's used to. And so that's why he hates computers, not in and of themselves, but as they apply to Earth in the 20th century. Not even a real computer yeah. by his standards. In the same way that we would sort of not, um, you know, we're... You wouldn't call a calculator a computer. Yeah, or an Amiga 500. Oh, well, <laughs> there's arguments to be made. My Commodore 64 is very hurt. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, so we've gotten to the point where we're going to ask you to indulge us in some cheese. Uh, We're going to do something we always do in every episode, which is where we talk about the cliffhangers and whether they are crackers or clangers. (laughs) We almost said we weren't going to do this one because there's eight of them. (laughs) Let's see if we can can crack through them then. All right, put the kettle on. (laughs) So part one. In the offices of IE, Tobias Vaughan, Managing Director, presses a button to ever so slowly <laughs> open a secret doorway that unveils an unearthly, glowing supercomputer. Yeah, great. Great. Almost, almost like an end of episode one monster reveal, even though you don't really know what it is. That's a good point. Great. Yeah. I love this one. Yeah, yeah. He's kind of revealing a piece of modern art, isn't he? <laughs> I, th- I think what sells it is the sound design. Uh, of course, the brilliant Brian Hodgson giving us the pulsing sound and the sound for the door. So there is a lead up to it, even if it is ever so slow. (laughs) I I love cliffhangers, which are what the hell is this rather than how the hell are we going to get out of this? Mm. And so this is a cracker for me. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. I think we're unanimous then. We go on to part two and reacting to the screams of the kidnapped Zoe and Isabel, the doctor and Jamie run to save them only to be menaced by Packer and his thugs. Well, that is a um, how are they going to get out of this cliffhanger, <laughs> isn't it? That is a finger in the old uh, in the collar. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think what I like is, of course, being Pat and Fraser. They literally run out of the set to immediately run back on <laughs> because they're being chased, and you, you get a great Patrick face at the end of yeah. that. Yeah, it's a bit samey as everything else. It's only kind of made special by the cast. Is that so? You're saying maybe possibly I, a cranger? I think that's <laughs> a cranger, a clacker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think that's probably a clacker for me too. Yeah, it's it's not great. <laughs> Part three. Still on the trail for Zoe and Isabel, the Doctor and Jamie are on the run from Packer and his international electromatics guards when they hide in a dark container. Jamie realises, though, that something is alive in there with him. Mm. Yeah, creepy. Creepy. Good creepy one. Yeah, this is a cracker for me. Mm. Yeah, this is... It's really good. It's well lit. Like, it actually looks like this tight, enclosed space. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and Fraser actually gives really good face for this cliffhanger. (laughs) So, yeah, it's it's a cracker for me. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. Me too. Definite cracker. Okay, lovely. Part four, then. Again on IE grounds, the Doctor and Jamie watch on as workmen revive the familiar writhing forms of a Cyberman. (laughs) They really decided a year ago that the thing Cybermen do best is burst out of things. <laughs> burst out of <laughs> cocoons and things and plastic. It's really effective. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an amazing cliffhanger. I think the hilarious thing about it, though, is that the Doctor and Jamie canoe up to it, yeah. have a look, and then canoe away. Yeah. So they're just there to catch the episode cliffhanger. Yeah. And, of course, before we had the animation... 
um, we had Nicholas Courtney on the videotape telling us mm. what had happened. Right. And so the first actual piece of dialogue in the episode is, quick back to the canoe. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember watching that videotape and sort of pausing because I don't think Nick mentions it in his narration and just kind of going, what, why, why? What, why have we got a canoe? And now that we have the animation, it's explained and That's it makes canoe. sense. And you know, it's quiet, but <laughs> quick back to the canoe is a cliffhanger solution you could only have in Doctor Who. <laughs> or Deliverance. Um, I'm particularly creeped out um, as much by the Cybermen, but also the writhing mass. Yeah. In those sort of uh, whatever the cocoons or whatever, and the, you know they're sort of attached to sort of like stethoscope sort of thingies, sure. and yeah, it's particularly sort of almost body horror for so, me. So there's hints, but like I mean, mm. if you didn't know, like we all do what, what's what's coming. Yeah, I if think you didn't you, pick up the radio times, gen- yeah, there you go. All right. <laughs> if you're ge- uh, if you're generally surprised, I think it's definitely a cracker. Yeah, I think so. Unanimous. Part five. In the sewers underneath IEHQ, Isabel, Zoe, and Jamie are caught and trapped in between two advancing sets of Cybermen. This uh, one, this one's fine for me, but it just takes Jamie so long to realise that there, that there's a Cyberman on either side. He has to be told very slowly by Zoe and and um, by Isabel. So it's a bit awkward for me. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a, a clacker for me. I think. Yeah. I really like it. I think it's, it is. There's a good reason why Cybermen in sewers, I think, are yeah. iconic. Mm. Um, and I really, really enjoy that subplot. And so it's wonderful to see them sort of head off and get yeah. immediately into sort of terrible trouble. <laughs> um, and the scary, scary mad Cyberman who yes. has been uh, treated to Vaughn's machine. We haven't talked about how scary, how creepy. Yeah, yeah. I think he's really great. And a little, like, you do feel sorry for him. I, I've said to Steve before, sometimes when yeah. monsters like Cybermen or Daleks get killed, you find yourself feeling sorry for them, even though yeah. they're sort because, of horrendously evil. Yeah, the humanity still remains buried yeah. deep somewhere in there, and, yeah. and that's what comes to the fore. Because I think, obviously, that machine is meant to, um, you know, take off the the limiting factor the of the... Yeah, the block yeah. on their emotions. And we see that again, don't we, in the Tenant 2 part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think Vaughn, I think Vaughn asked Gregory to expose it to fear. That's so right. So it's feeling yeah. fear. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, you do feel a little bit. You do feel a little bit of sympathy for it. Um, I think it's a great cliffhanger, and <laughs> yeah, it is kind of. The cast have to explain to us exactly what the threat yeah. is. <laughs> I do wonder though if that is because. Being Douglas Canfield, he's gone as authentic as he can, and it's almost pitch black. It's like pitch oh, black, yeah. then with the highlights of the faces. So maybe people at home, it's like, we're going to explain to you exactly what this is, like it's a big finish. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Canfield's shots are so good that you, uh, you sort of immediately clock that they, they look one way and then they look the other way, and then there they are, they're surrounded. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. And that they're caught in the middle. Yeah, I think yeah, so too. No, I think it works for me too. I, I'm going to give it a cracker. So. Yeah, it's a cracker for me. Okay, yeah. okay lovely. Part six, as London and the world at large falls prey to the hypnotic effects of the micro-monolithic circuits embedded in Vaughan's omnipresent electronics, the Cybermen at last emerge from hiding, swarming out of the sewers and down the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral. The invasion is at last underway. Yeah, well, that one's terrible, isn't it? I mean, there's a reason why that's an iconic Doctor Who image. It's one of the best cliffhangers ever. The, The Cybermen continue to march through uh, 
the streets kind of after we should have faded to black. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the music comes in and we've still got the sound. It's so, so impressive. St. <laughs> Paul's Cathedral in the background, it's yeah. just like one of the crackers of the 60s, if not the whole show. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a cracker for me as well. Um, I think it is so well done. The way Camfield directs it, you can't tell that he only has six or eight sides. No yeah, it looks like there's masses of yeah. them. You do have to wonder, though, if there's a group of people sitting in a cafe somewhere yeah. saying, well, I'm glad I've got an Android because <laughs> this just doesn't happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone else is under my control. <laughs> I think that's a unanimous... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Part seven, then. Vaughn's use to the Simon is at an end. And as the cyber controller or planner or director informs him that they will now take over and destroy all life on the planet. Realising at last that he has been duped, like all collaborators with the Cybermen, the Doctor asks Vaughn, Is this what you wanted? To be the ruler of a dead world? Fade to black. Such a good line. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a, a Pat Troughton line, you know, like if you can end your episode on Pat Troughton saying something incredibly dramatic, why not do that? It's an absolute cracker. <laughs> yeah, cracker. Absolutely. Must do. Yeah, it's unanimous again. Any, so, any any cliffhanger with with Vaughn in it's probably got to be yeah, gotta be yeah. and and as, we, as you mentioned before Nathan it's the double act between these two um, it's superb they're such great actors they're very very different from one another physically as well as in terms of their style and it just comes to a head beautifully in this cliffhanger part eight then it's a BBC crap joke as the Doctor and his <laughs> companions say goodbye to Jimmy Turner and Isabel as they depart in the invisible TARDIS. In a field full of cows. Oh, yeah, the invisible TARDIS in the field. That was <laughs> really great. Is there some production reason for that? No, it's entirely a script reason to give the Doctor an excuse to have circuits to repair. Oh, okay. So he has to go into town to see Professor Travers okay. and get him get involved in the thing. Because initially I thought it was so they don't have to take the box out to the field. But, of course, the box appears yeah, in the field. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, that's it was actually a plot reason rather than we don't want to have to cart the prop... <laughs> <laughs> out out and scare the cows. <laughs> yeah. it, is a, it is a crap joke, but I love watching Troughton feel around in the field for his invisible TARDIS. It's, it's quite, really it's like, funny. It's yeah. lovely. All three of them kind of doing yeah. it with their bums stuck out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love right. it. I think it's a it's a bit of a clacker, actually, but sure. um, I think it would be improved if we had a, a shot of Jimmy and um, Isabel reacting to the TARDIS's disappearance uh, yeah. and yeah. sadly missing. Oh, yeah, because it just fades and that's it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. and yeah, just... A bit awkward. Yeah, credits roll because we get them reacting to the TARDIS appearing out of thin air. Mm. We then need them, and yeah, yeah I think I think yeah. the closing shot of the credits as Jimmy and Isabel walk back to the car and he puts her his arm around her that would have been lovely. Yeah, <laughs> there yeah. you go. Is oh, that your? <laughs> that's that's, that's in my head canon. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. No, the crap joke doesn't land without its uh, sort of punchline reaction shot. Yeah. I just love I just love them feeling around in the field. It. <laughs> what it really needed was a double taking pigeon. <laughs> you could say that about any Doctor Who episode, Brandon. Oh, they have oh, the, the, there's my new YouTube series. <laughs> <laughs> they have the cow on the screen at the start they should have brought it back for the end mm. yes yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay so this is even though it's eight parts there's far more in the way of crackers and clangers in terms of the cliffhangers in the invasion did we have a full clanger or was it just crackers just just crangers and clackers uh, clackers i think were yeah. was as bad as it got pretty good for us pretty good for us so it's it's that time of the the episode where we're sort of coming to the end here but we of course can't finish up without asking the question of our guests oh yes why should we watch this? Why should anyone watch this? 
one of my favourite seasons of new Doctor Who is season two, which centres around the rise of the Cyberman. And that two-parter early in the season owes so much to the invasion, Mm. is in many ways a soft remake of it. We even have explicit references to international electromatics in it. It's um, clearly something that Russell himself remembers very fondly. (laughs) And when he reintroduces the Cyberman, and I would argue that he does a spectacular job of that in that two-parter that's where he goes he goes back to the invasion Mm -hmm. there's a couple of reasons i think you should watch this first of all if you are someone who has enjoyed the pertwee era of doctor who if you've enjoyed the unit stories of the new series this is where it all begins Mm -hmm. and where the strength of it begins is having a variety of characters So we have the military characters, but we also have civilian characters who get caught up in this intrigue. And everyone gets their own story throughout. So really the Doctor, the Brigadier and Vaughn are kind of the leaders of the main story. Jamie, Zoe and Isabel run around getting into trouble (laughs) and... But also leading their stories too they're not just peril monkeys Mm. when they do get into trouble it's because they are taking an active role in the plot yes then there is the romance that's blossoming between isabel and jimmy (laughs) and unlike other doctor who romances where you know they kind of look at each other once and at the end of episode six oh yeah fine i'll settle down with you (laughs) this At the end of the story, it's very much still a beginning romance Mm. and they kind of tease each other and have fun with each other. (laughs) Lines like, hey, are you stinking rich? And he's like, no, (laughs) not okay. And she's like, okay, fine, I'll keep you. Um, Yeah, there's not a wasted part. There's not a bad actor, Mm. I don't think. Um, Professor Watkins probably gets the least to do out of the main speaking characters, but that fits the plot as well, because his absence is a plot point. I would say, though, if you are a fan of the new series and you are coming to this and watching it, don't watch more than two episodes at a time. Mm. This story does move slowly, but it never feels padded to me. It is developing its plot slowly. So, again, you get to know these characters, as we were saying earlier, but... If you are a Pertwee fan, if you are a new series fan with a love for Unit, definitely watch this story. If you like the Cybermen, definitely watch this story. And if you don't watch this story, watch something else by Patrick Troughton because he is the best Doctor. And if you're a Matt Smith fan, that's where Matt Smith kind of gets his inspiration and not just sartorially. So, there you go. It does does have that, that old school BBC 60s pacing. But like you said, there's not a lot of third episode filler per se just it's just got that slow pacing but it's just so rich and like you said those characters really get more development than they would normally get especially because it's an eight-parter i reckon if you're a sort of netflix binge watcher uh you could probably give this a go (laughs) you probably could watch more than two episodes uh, because i think it creates this world and these lovely people that it's really fun to spend time with very much as long as you're inoculated against 60s bbc pacing (laughs) (laughs) definitely i I will say at times sitting down and making time and watching a whole long old doctor who story like a seven parter or an eight parter it does have a sort of very relaxing effect because you're not constantly getting plot whiplash Mm -hmm. you've got time to absorb the plot as it comes to you there's, there's been studies that say, like, if you watch three movies in a row, your brain releases endorphins because you're in a very relaxed and safe state. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there is a case for watching this all in one go. I've, I've watched this all in one go before. It's fantastic. Yeah. 
I, I've got to admit, I've done the same and, and multiple times as well. This is one of the uh, half a dozen or so Doctor Who stories that if I need comfort food, if yeah. I'm sick, mm. if, I'm, if I'm just having a quiet Sunday at home and I'll just put it on in the background, uh, I know it plot by, you know, plot point by plot point yeah. and beat by beat and I, I will never get tired of it. It's, it is the characters. They're just so lovely. I want to be in their presence. The, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge sucker for 60s uh, spy fi yeah. as, as well as Doctor Who sci-fi and those two things coming together <laughs> is just a fantasy for me. So everything about this story is just classic Doctor Who defined into eight, eight parts for me. And I think if you're going to reach for Troughton, this is one of the ones you can't go past and you definitely yeah. can't, admit, can't miss it. Yeah, I agree. Once again here on New to Who, we're going to be sharing the love. Uh, this time in the spotlight, it's the Never Cruel or Cowardly podcast with Matt and Leon. Catch them on Twitter at Polite Whovians. I love that handle because they really are. That's nice. Um, shout out also to Billy Kirkbright from Geraldton WA who got in touch with us recently. Yeah. Some really nice kind words and also a paparazzi-style snap of Tom Baker <laughs> on the streets of London and a really lovely story of, of how he basically got to meet and thank Major Tom. Hmm. Uh, so thanks uh, Billy for sharing that story it's nice to hear from you next time what is it next time Dan well uh, we're going to hit a fan favourite which is a little bit controversial but I've always enjoyed it because it's super weird it's uh, Inferno Third Doctor Season 7 Unit Again yeah and Colour super evil creepy unit wearing black gloves and they get to they get to have fun with it but more on that (laughs) next time All right, so before we go, we need to say thank you once again to Nathan and Brendan from Flight Through Entirety. Mm-hmm. Gents, it's been an absolute pleasure to discuss one of my most favourite Doctor Who stories of all time. <laughs> so thank you for coming Thanks in. Thanks so much. Oh, oh, no, thank you for having us. It's been great to actually <laughs> do this in person. Yeah. Also, super weird to see your voices coming out of your faces. <laughs> <laughs> right back at you. <laughs> do you want to give us maybe a brief uh, outline of what's going to be happening with Flight through entirety going forward into 2018 yeah so at the end of last year we actually reached the end of the classic series <laughs> and we did our commentary on uh, the tv movie so we- you guys have been doing every episode if, sorry sweet dogs i'm sure you know this already but um, flight through entirety have been doing every episode chronologically from the very start over Going three back to 2014 three years started, yeah, yeah. Yep. so it's 132 episodes brendan 132 episodes approximately 132 hours <laughs> because earlier episodes were longer middle episodes were shorter and then we settled on about an hour during the davison era <laughs> um yeah and yeah it has just been a wild yeah. three and a half year <laughs> ride <laughs> So we will be doing the new series. We owe our listeners some commentary. So <laughs> they'll be coming out while we're kind of gearing up to covering uh, series one Lovely. of the new series. And that will be later this year. Sweet dogs, if you haven't had a chance to listen to Flight Through Entirety, please do so. It really is one of our absolute most favorite podcasts. Most definitely. Maybe not all at once. <laughs> Just block out a week. It's less than a week. <laughs> Don't sleep. <laughs> No, but highly recommended. So, gents, once again, thank you so much for coming, and this has been a joy. Yeah. Yes, it has. It's, it's, it's been so much fun. Thank you. For, thank you for organising all this. Like, um, Sweet Dogs, what you may not realise is we are the first to be recording with uh, these two chaps this weekend. They are planning mammoth sessions with other <laughs> Sydney-based podcasters. And, yeah, just just you wait. It's, it is going to be a tour de force for a few months of New Jersey. So. Including our most special guest, the Cicadas of Sydney, who you may have, <laughs> who you may have heard, and I'm wondering, I'm going to disrupt our editing, but hopefully not. <laughs> Welcome, Cicadas. You can buy the DVD 
of The Invasion from BBC Online or buy and download the episodes from iTunes. You can follow New to Who on Twitter at at New to Who Podcast and also Facebook or even email us at newtowhopodcast at gmail.com. You can find all our episodes at newtowho.com on iTunes or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Um, and if you feel like clicking subscribe or if you'd like to leave us a review, that helps us get noticed and helps people get to our podcast. So that'd be wonderful. We hate goodbyes. So until next time, I'm Brendan. I'm Nathan. I'm Stephen. And I'm Dan. Thanks very much. Be seeing you. Go talk, get down!